0: Well, welcome again to another podcast, Down to Earth, but heavenly minded. And again, I'm your host, Irv Risch. Well, we're going to continue on uh, with our look at John, uh, John's gospel. And uh, we're in uh, chapter 16. And this chapter really is kind of a continuation of the last chapter that we looked at. And a lot of it is about the Holy Spirit God, The Lord Jesus Christ is getting ready to face the enemy. In this chapter, uh, he gives our last uh, look at what he has to say before we get into chapter 17, which is uh, the Lord's uh, high priestly prayer to the Father. And uh, that is a very, very important chapter. But before we get to it, we have to kind of conclude what he has to say to his disciples and us who are followers of Jesus Christ. So with that said, I'm just going to start our, uh, our next uh, chapter here. So uh, let me get it set up here.
1: John chapter 16 A layman looks at John's Gospel. The Lord's upper room ministry is concluding. In this chapter he sums up his teaching and focuses on the mission of the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete who will come alongside the apostles to help and guide them. He will comfort and instruct them, giving them power to testify of Jesus and will expand their understanding of the truth he taught them. He will also fill in in what is missing in future prophecy. These things I have spoken to you so that you will not be led into sin. A good leader prepares his followers for the time when he will no longer be around. A good boss is always training his replacement. Our Lord was preparing his disciples for his departure. With him gone, they would become Satan's targets. They will ban, lit excommunicate you from the synagogue yet an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering a service to God. The religious flesh is out of touch with God and resents those who are. The Jews bitterly opposed the gospel and the apostles just as they did to Christ himself. Out of touch with God they think they are doing God's service when they go after his servants. Sadly we see this in professing Christendom today. They may not kill the Lord's servants who confront their careless ways, but they certainly will attempt to drive them away. These things they will do because they have not known the Father nor me. This is a very serious conclusion the Lord draws. Those who oppose God's sent ones do it because they have not known the Father or the Son. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Forewarned is forearmed. The Lord is filling up their water pots, and the Holy Spirit will soon turn the water into wine. He will bring these things to their remembrance, and then they will make perfect sense. However, I did not say these things to you at the beginning, because I was with you. While the Lord walked and talked among them, there was no need of these things. When I would take my children up to Montreal to watch a baseball game, I would hold on to the tickets until we got to the gate and then I'd hand them over to them to present for entrance. That way the tickets would not be damaged or lost. God doesn't give what we don't need until we do need it. The Holy Spirit promised. It is essential for Christians to be firmly grounded in the teaching or doctrine of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Ignorance of what the Bible teaches us about him has led to significant error of thinking and practice among believers, and opens us to the doctrines of demons. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, grief has filled your heart. The disciples had followed the Lord with the idea that he would shortly set up his promised kingdom and that they would reign with him. Now he has made it clear to them that he must die and leave them for a time. They have listened in stunned silence. He is gentle with his correction of them. He knew that it was a lot for them to process. He asked them why none of them inquired as to where he was going. The Lord knows and understands our every thought. Nothing is hidden from him, so we might as well vocalize our questions. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I am leaving, for if I do not leave, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Something hitherto unknown to mankind was at the door. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity was about to come and take up residence in believers. His arrival awaited the Lord's triumphant return to heaven and formation of the church. The Lord doesn't speak of the church here, but we will learn so much more about this whole subject from the Apostle Paul in his letters. The church was a mystery hid in God and not yet revealed. Here the Lord promises that the Holy Spirit will be sent to them only after He leaves. The Lord then tells them of the Holy Spirit's mission as regards the world at large, then He will tell them of the Spirit's mission to them. And He, when He comes, will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the Spirit's work towards a lost and guilty world, men who are dead in trespasses and sin. Of course, for a soul to be receptive to anything from God requires the sovereign quickening by the Holy Spirit. He uses the conscience as the one thing man has as a result of the fall is the knowledge of good and evil. There are three things the Spirit will convict the conscience of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Regarding sin, because they do not believe in me, and regarding righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you no longer are going to see me, and regarding judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The great and fatal sin a person can commit is to not believe on Christ. God has offered a full and free pardon to all. The chief of sinners could be completely forgiven. The worst murderer, rapist, or war criminal can find pardon in Christ. Rejection of God's terms of peace leads only to eternal damnation. To trample underfoot the blood of Christ and do despite to the spirit of grace is an awful thing. God has nothing more to offer that person. The resurrection and glorification of Christ is God's proof to man that His righteousness was fully satisfied at the cross. Had it not been, Jesus would have remained dead and in the grave. God is now proclaimed as a just God and a Savior. No sin of mine will ever come to light that was not covered by the blood of Christ. Satan is a beaten foe. Yes, he still has liberty to even enter heaven to accuse the brethren, and yes, he still is the God of this world, but he is a vanquished enemy. Although God has deferred Satan's punishment until he has fully served God's use for him, his judgment is sure and we are not ignorant of his devices. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them at the present time. The large body of New Testament truth remained yet a mystery. The mystery of Christ and the Church, Jew and Gentile united in one new man, the heavenly hopes of the Church, the blessed hope of the Rapture, are all things that they were not yet ready to have imparted to them. It would be the Holy Spirit's mission to unfold them through the Apostles. But when He, the Spirit of Truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. The Lord promised that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. True, there were many miracles performed to prove that Christ had indeed risen from among the dead, but those things were a sign, not to those who believed, but to those who did not believe. Paul tells us that about tongues in 1 Corinthians. There is nothing here about tongues or holy laughter or manifestations of the kundalini spirit with the subject performing lewd and indecent movements supposedly displaying the Holy Spirit. Beloved Christians, these things are the work of deceiving spirits. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, not loud and disorderly ecstasy. The Holy Spirit has come to reveal Christ to us. He will not speak of his volition but in total consistency with what God has already revealed. Whatever he hears from God, he will pass on to believers. For he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. A significant portion of what the Holy Spirit reveals pertains to the future. In the early days of the church, he warned the saints of a coming famine in Jerusalem and instructed believers around the Mediterranean world to send gifts back to Jerusalem, having received spiritual blessing flowing from the Jews. As the New Testament was written, we find quite a bit about the future revealed. The Rapture and numerous teachings regarding the Lord's appearing. Of course, the Book of Revelation provides us with all we need to know about the Tribulation and the Lord's return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and goes on to depict not only His Millennial Kingdom, but it describes in detail the eternal state when the habitation of God will be with man and no sin can ever enter into Mart, that new creation. He will glorify me, for he will take from mine and will disclose it to you. His object is to glorify Christ, taking the things of Christ and disclosing them to our hearts. When you sit under someone's teaching or preaching, you can know if it is coming in the power of the Holy Spirit. Is Christ more precious to you for having heard the spoken or written word? Do you know and appreciate more of him? Does the message lead to a closer moral conformity with Christ? If so, it is the work of the Holy Spirit, if not, at best it is the work of the religious flesh. All things that the Father has are mine, this is why I said that he takes from mine and will disclose it to you. The union of the Godhead is beyond the natural mind to comprehend. It is by revelation that we learn it and we can only handle bits and pieces at a time. As our hearts are engaged with Christ, The Holy Spirit delights to unfold his glories to us and we grow in appreciation of all that he is and has. Jesus' death and resurrection foretold. A little while, and you no longer are going to see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. This was a puzzling statement to the disciples. What could the Lord mean? So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he is telling us, a little while, and you are not going to see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and, because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what is this that he says, a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. There are things we read in the Bible that we don't understand. Rather than force a contrived meaning on them, it's good to say with the disciples, we do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said, a little while, and you are not going to see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? We can deliberate between ourselves over the meaning of something in the Lord's word, or we can ask him. He alone can give the correct meaning. The Lord knows their hearts and graciously explains himself to them. Truly, truly I say to you that you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice, you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Just ahead of the was the cross. The Lord would be beaten, mocked, and crucified. It seemed that all their hopes of a kingdom would come to naught. They would weep and mourn. The world would triumphantly rejoice at his death. Three days later, the tables would be turned and the Lord would rise from among the dead, and their sorrow would be turned into joy. The Lord then uses the simile of childbirth. A woman sustains terrible pain to bring a child into the world. As a man, I can only take my wife's word that labor is the most painful thing a person can experience. Whenever a woman is in labor she is pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. I was with my wife through the births of our children. I remember when our youngest son was born, my wife had a particularly difficult time and endured a lot of pain. No sooner had our son made his appearance and landed in her arms, but her first words were, Oh, Keith, I can't wait to do it again. The joy of the newborn baby in her arms wiped away all the hurt. Therefore you two have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one is going to take your joy away from you. The Lord's promise went beyond his resurrection. That was the first wave, as their sorrow would be turned to joy, but his promises go on to his return to heaven and his coming again to receive us unto himself, that where he is, there may we also be. These exceeding great and precious promises give the believer a joy that no one can take away. Now the Lord focuses on the change coming of the disciples' relationship with the Father. When the Lord gave up his spirit on the cross and dismissed his own life, we read that the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. By this the Holy Spirit signified that access to the very throne of God was open and free to every child of God. And on that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. What the Lord is promising them is full and free access to the Father. Up to that point the Lord was a mediator, bringing their needs before the Father, but now they are brought into the relationship of sons of God, and His sons can address the Father directly as Papa or Dada. We have been given the Holy Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Yes, we are to ask in Jesus' name, but we are to address the Father directly now. If even Christ does not stand between us and God the Father, it is nothing short of idolatry to set Mary or the saints in that place. By asking in Jesus' name, we are seeking his glory in all that we ask for. We dare not ask in his name for the satisfaction of selfish desires. To put it into the realm of absurd to make a point, you would not ask in Jesus' name for God to grant you a date with a movie star or for good luck at a gambling casino, would you? A life in communion with the Father is an abundant life and the fullness of joy. These things I have spoken to you in figures of speech, An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day you will ask in my name, and I am not saying to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. As his crucifixion and subsequent glorification draw near, the Lord is changing his manner of speech, and the things which have been hidden will be revealed and made plain. For the Father himself loves you. Why do we not need the Lord to ask for things from the Father on our behalf? because the Father himself loves us. We are the direct objects of his parental care. We have been given the authority to become the children of God, even as many as have believed on Jesus' name. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Christ is the fulcrum. Believing on him and loving him are the criteria for being the sons and daughters of God the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world, again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. The Lord is telling them in no uncertain terms that He is returning to heaven. His disciples said, See, now you are speaking plainly and are not using any figure of speech. The disciples probably thought they understood more than they did, but their expression of faith is noted here. Of course, the Lord does know all things and needs no scrutiny. Now we know that you know all things, and that you have no need for anyone to question you, this is why we believe that you came forth from God. They still had so much to learn about themselves and about the Christ, but they acknowledged that they believe that he came out from God. Shortly they will all forsake him and flee. The sword is about to be awakened again the shepherd, Jehovah's fellow as he is called in the book of Zechariah. Then it says, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus replied to them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come, for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. They would have been shocked to know how quickly they all would turn away from him when he was arrested. He would stand alone before Pilate and Herod, and yet he would not be alone because the Father would be with him. We read some lovely words in the account of Abraham and Isaac going up into Moriah where Abraham would bind his son to the altar. It says, so they went, both of them together. Hand in hand, Abraham and his son climbed that mountain, and hand in hand God the Father and God the Son went up Golgotha's hill. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. What great sorrow must have overwhelmed the disciples when they realized that they'd forsaken their Lord? It must have shaken them to the very core, but the Lord knew all about it beforehand and told them so. They could have peace, knowing that it was part of the plan, and that it did not take the Lord by surprise. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Put this in your prosperity gospel pipe and smoke it a while. In this world the believer will have tribulation. That is part and parcel of the life of discipleship. Rather than being discouraged by this, we can count it all joy. The Lord has overcome the world, and in Him, so have we. Before moving on to the Lord's Prayer in John 17, I'd like to go over something that was in the 16th chapter. The Lord spoke of all three members of the Godhead involved in our care and blessing. In the 15th chapter of John, we get three stories that teach us about this. Two of the stories are parables, and the third one is an account. The first is of a shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep in the wilderness to search for and bring back one lost sheep. Clearly this is typical of the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd. Notice verse 5, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. It's our Lord's joy to carry us all the way home. The next parable is of a lost coin. It has no capacity to respond or to find itself. All the action is on the part of the woman who lights a candle and sweeps the house. This is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Lastly, we have the story of a certain man who had two sons. The younger son prematurely takes his inheritance and squanders it on riotous living in a far country. Having spent all and encountered a famine, he endeavors to be made a hired hand in his father's enterprise. Instead, his father sees him a great way off and runs to greet him. He falls on his neck and kisses him, commanding that the very best robe be placed on him and a great feast be prepared in celebration of his return. In all three stories, there is great joy over the return of what was lost. My grandfather told me a story which I will tell you. There was a Bible conference, and some leading teachers were trying their best to explain the Trinity. In the front row was a young man that today we would call developmentally disabled. In my grandfather's day, he was labelled retarded. He sat listening for an hour while these intellectuals expounded on their understanding of the Trinity. Suddenly the young man stood up, gleaming with joy. I see, I see. What do I see? Three in one, and one in three, and all the three are there for me. Simple faith takes hold of these divine truths in a way that the great intellects pass right on by. The whole Godhead is united in saving us and in bringing us home to the Father's house.
0: Well, with the completion of this chapter, chapter 16, something that really came to my mind as we read through this uh, writing by Keith, the fact that I could see the heart of God in this chapter. Christ is now coming to the point in his life that he purposed to come into this world to complete. And it was not an easy task. In fact, in the next chapter, we'll see that when he prayed, he He was in such anguish that his sweat was like blood. I've never had anguish that deep in my life. But the God of the universe, the creator of all things, anguish for me. You know, I love what Keith said about this young boy, this... uh, one that had a disability, where he said, "Uh, I see, I see. What do I see? Three in one and one in thee. And all the three are there for me. God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit, all three took part in our salvation because god loved us so much well the next time we get together we're going to be looking at uh, the lord's high priestly prayer and i know that uh, there are many that have called this uh, the lord's prayer but there are some who believe that when god instructed the disciples to pray they call that the lord's prayer actually that's our prayer the our father who art in heaven it's not the lord's prayer the next chapter chapter 17 is the lord's prayer and we'll see that the next time we get together so with that said i'm just going to end our podcast till next time bye for now